0: series making of frozen 2 on disney plus and the release of hamilton on disney plus i talk about my adventures to i can't remember the name of it state park in washington uh that was a lot of fun critical role is back finally after after so many weeks i don't know why i'm saying like finally like what the fuck where have you guys been it's not like the world exploded and there was a horrible pandemic oh wait there was and is it's still ongoing nothing's changed it's still very much a problem, but critical role is back. Social distancing, um, and it's phenomenal to see all of their charming faces again. And we read three more chapters of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. I am exhausted. It's um as of as of right now, it is the Fourth of July, and it's nine thirty at night, and I'm very tired because I I did my. You'll hear about what I did today here in a little bit, but there's just just an ass load of fireworks going off like right outside my window and i'm all for people celebrating whatever they want to celebrate but fuck fireworks i hate them unless i'm at disney world i don't like fireworks i i hate it i hate it so much i don't like the sound i don't like what they look like i don't like the fact that they're right next to me and the worst bit is you don't know when they're going to pop off or how long they're going to pop off. And if you're one of those people who puts who lights fireworks off on any other day besides this day and maybe New Year's if I'm feeling generous, stop it. Stop it. No, no one else enjoys it. Unless you're lighting fireworks. Everybody else around you hates you and wants you to stop it. Just Please. Please find any out just do a barbecue spend time with your family please leave the explosives out of it it just it just makes me so mad it makes me it's happening right fuck now I will go outside and I will get a fire hose and I will spray all of your fireworks so they can't light anymore I'm not gonna do that um god damn it anyway enough of that cheeriness uh if you enjoy the going out cast and wish to support the going out cast and all of my fire hatred um, firework hatred. Although, I suppose fire is also worthy of being hated, but it does cook my food. At least has a practicality. Anyway, you can go to patreon.com forward slash growing upcast, where you can become a $5 patron and get access to the monthly live streams when we talk about, you know, all sorts of fun stuff. Um, actually, speaking of which, I guess the next monthly live stream is probably going to be let's do next Sunday. How's that sound for everybody? That sound good. I'm going to pencil I'm going to pencil that in. We'll pencil that in for the 12th of July. I'm um, going to get my pad of paper and write that down right now with my weird light-up pen. Uh, 7 12 2020 live stream. That sounds good. Also, you can watch um the weekly episodes of the Pokémon Nuzlocke run. Uh, which I will hopefully record tomorrow morning. I was going to do it tonight, but I don't want it peppered with fireworks. And let's be honest, that would just be a 20 to 30 minute video of me ranting about how much I hate fireworks and nobody wants to watch that. So yeah. Um, you can, you can do all of those things over there on Patreon. Um, and yeah, I think that's, I think that's it. That's enough, enough blithering out of me. Um, also actually one more thing before I let you guys listen to the actual podcast, um, the ad spot that I paid for, um, with maximum fun will hopefully go up this Saturday. Um, cause it didn't go up this last Saturday, which makes sense. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm hopeful that it'll happen, um, this upcoming weekend and it'll be really, really interesting to see, uh, how successful or lack thereof that is. So I'm excited and, um believe me you'll know uh because i won't be able to shut up about it so fucking fireworks let's get into the podcast where hopefully there are no fireworks in the backgrounds of the recording got some new things on the disney plus service to talk about number one is the release of the 75 million dollars that disney spent to get the streaming rights to hamilton this excuse me. This version of Hamilton was recorded back in 2016, uh, during the height of its Broadway era, and it's phenomenal. I've been listening to Hamilton since I found out about it, more or less, plus a couple of years. Found out about it, didn't listen to it, and then I listened to it later, and I was like, man, this is really good. And seeing it, um, actually seeing the musical is is awesome, especially when you consider that ticket prices for when it was like really popular were. Just absolutely absurd. Uh, The musical itself is phenomenal. The staging and choreography of the musical itself is really good. Um, I particularly enjoyed the fact that the actors that played uh, Lawrence, Hercules Mulligan, and Lafayette uh, came back in the second act as different characters. I had no idea that they did that um i always thought that lafayette kind of sounded like jefferson but i never knew that they were just the same actors again i thought that was really smart and clever and i loved it um i thought that was awesome uh except for poor lawrence who dies twice in the musical uh yeah it made me cry i thought everybody did a stellar job i would watch it again and having the freedom to just watch it whenever is super fucking cool um so yes i will i will be remiss If I didn't mention this with all my talk of, um, of streaming services and stuff like that, um, I'm just making sure it's still a thing. Um, yes, yes it is. So if you enjoyed, uh, Hamilton on Disney plus, but you're like, how can I watch more fucking, uh, musicals and plays and Broadway performances, you can go to Broadway HD, um, that is its own streaming service. Um, and it has uh, just a ton of fucking musical recordings and stage performances um, that uh, you can't really watch anywhere else. Like there's Driving Miss Daisy with Angela Lansbury and James Earl Jones is on there. Uh, I don't. This isn't sponsored. I'm just mentioning that if you want more musicals and stuff like that, then there is a streaming service for that um, that not a lot of people know about. So just letting you know, Broadway HD, uh, there's Macbeth with Patrick Stewart, you know, it's got some, it's got some stuff on there. I don't use it. I've never used it. I just know it exists. So there you go. Broadway HD. Also there's Newsies on, um, on Disney plus as well. And, uh, I think Netflix still has Shrek the musical, which I know a lot of people will dump on, but I'm telling you Lord Farquaad fucking makes it. So yeah. Um, check it. There's lots of great musicals. Just Just watch them. I also think you can buy musicals, like the DVD recordings of them. I'm not 100% sure on that one. Uh, But you can do a Google search. I'm sure you'll find something. Uh, The other thing that they've got on Disney Plus right now is a six-part docu-series, uh, The Making of Frozen 2. Uh, They had the foresight to record this docu-series about a year out of the official release, knowing that it was, like... Maybe not the most anticipated Disney movie of all time, but the most... Like, this movie had so much to live up to. Because Frozen was kind of like a like a hit that came out of nowhere, right? Like, Frozen was announced and came out, and nobody expected it to be as big as it was. And so when they start working on Frozen 2, they were like, people are going to w- expect a lot of this movie, so we gotta nail it. And I enjoyed the docuseries, I'm on episode 2 right now, for its no-holds-barred approach of criticism nobody is is being spoken to like well i see what you're doing here i see the direction you were going in but it's not quite what we were hoping for so we were hoping something more than this nobody's like pulling those punches they're like this is shit the fuck have you been doing for the last eight hours this this is terrible um and everybody gets some the director gets it the the songwriters get it The animators super fucking get it. Uh, the actors get it. Everybody gets dumped on. Um, and it just let me know that I don't have the constitution to be a part of this industry because I'm just like, God damn. But it also shows you how insanely talented everybody is that they could take that criticism and go, okay. And then like the, the fucking songwriters will just sit down and just crank out like a brand new fucking song in no time. The animator will go back and they're like, I just ran down the street and I've used that as reference and now the scene's perfect. And I'm just like, holy shit, these people are crazy good. It's so, it's fun. It's really fun. Um, I honestly think it's more interesting um, to see like the creative process of it more than what they're actually creating. Like I liked Frozen 2 a lot. But, like, let's say you didn't like Frozen 2, I don't think the fact that it's about Frozen is going to drag it down in terms of viewing, you know? If you didn't like the movie, I think you'll still find something worthwhile to enjoy from the docuseries, because it's always fun to see how things are made. Um, And these are some of the best filmmakers in the world, making a pretty good movie, and the world renowned walt disney studios and just like you can see their process you can see what their offices look like you can see how many people were involved it's it's pretty incredible i'm i'm really enjoying it and i'm excited to complete it and i hope they do more stuff like this this is the type of stuff i love to see the imagineering documentary and this docuseries it's just so fucking good it's really well put together and i'm very much enjoying it Also, those fun shots where people will walk into frame, realize they're in frame, not continue to walk across the frame, but rather will begin to walk backwards out of frame, thinking like that just magically undoes it. I love that. I've I've seen that happen a couple of times, and I think it's pretty fantastic. So, good job, awkward people. Anyway, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Alrighty, what fucking chapter are we on? It's been... It's been one week since I read this shit. <laughs> Chapter 6. Is what we're on. Chapter 6 at full steam. Full steam ahead. At this shout, the entire crew rushed towards the harpooner. Commander officers, maids, sailors, cabin boys, down to do, engineers leaving their machinery and stokers neglecting their furnaces. The order was given to stop, and the frigate merely coasted. By then, the darkness was profound. And as good as the Canadian's eyes were, I wondered how he could see and what he had seen. My heart was pounding, fit to burst. But Nedland was not mistaken, and we all spotted the object his hand was indicating. Two cable lengths off the Abraham Lincoln starboard quarter. The sea seemed to be lit up from underneath. This was no mere phosphorescent phenomenon. That much was unmistakable. Submerged some fathoms below the surface of the water. The monster gave off that very intense but inexplicable glow. That several captains had mentioned in their reports this magnificent radiance had to come from some force with a great illuminating capacity the edge of its light swept over the sea of an immense highly elongated oval condensing at the center into a blazing core whose unbearable glow diminished by degrees outward it's only a cluster of phosphorescent particles exclaimed one of the officers um, no, sir, I answered with conviction. Not even angel wing clams or scalps have ever given off such a powerful light. That glow is basically electric in nature. Besides, look, look, it's shifting. It's moving back and forth. It's darting at us. A universal shout went up from the frigate. Right, said Commander Farragut. Helm hard to leeward, reverse engines. That wasn't his voice. It was great, Commander Farragut asked. Helm hard to leeward, reverse engines. Sailors rushed to the helm, engineers to their machinery. Under reversed steam immediately, the Airman Lincoln uh, beat to port, sweeping in a semicircle. Right your helm, engines forward, Commander Farragut called. These orders were executed, and the frigate swiftly retreated from this core of light. My mistake. It wanted to retreat, but the unearthly animal came at us with a speed double our own. We gasped. More stunned than afraid, we stirred mute and motionless. The animal caught up with us, played with us, and made a full circle around the frigate. Then, doing 14 dots, wrapped us in a sheets of electricity that were like luminous dust. Then reacted, uh, retreated two or three miles, leaving a phosphorescent trail comparable to those swirls of steam that shoot behind the locomotive of an express train. Suddenly, all the way from the dark horizon, where I had gone to gather momentum, the monster abruptly dashed towards Abraham Lincoln with frightening speed, stopped sharply 20 feet from our side plates, and died down, not by diving under the water, since its glow did not recede gradually, but all at once, as if and died out, as if the source of the brilliant emanation had suddenly dried up. Then it reappeared on the other side of the ship, either by circling around us or by gliding under our hull. At any instant, a collision could have occurred. That would have been fatal to us. Meanwhile, I was astonished at the frigate's maneuvers. It was fleeing, not fighting. Built to pursue, it was being pursued. And I commented this uh, uh, on this to Commander Farragut. His face, ordinarily so motionless, was stamped with indescribable astonishment. Professor he answer me. I don't know what kind of fearsome creature this I'm up against, and I don't want my frigate running foolish risks in all this darkness. Seth, so how should we attack this unknown creature? How should we defend ourselves against it? Let's wait for daylight, and then we'll play a different role. You've no, you have, uh, you've no further doubts, Commander, as to the nature of this animal? Oh, sir, it's apparently a gigantic narwhal and an electric one to boot. Maybe, I added, it's no more approachable than an electric eel or an electric ray. Right, the so Commander replied, and if it has their power to electrocute, it's surely the most dreadful animal ever conceived by our creator. That's why I'll keep on my guard, sir. The whole crew stayed on their feet all night long. "'No one even thought of sleeping. "'Unable to compete with the monster's speed, "'the Abraham Lincoln slowed down and stayed at half-steam. "'For its part, the narwhal mimicked the frigate, "'simply rode with the waves "'and seemed determined not to forsake the field of battle. "'However, near midnight, it disappeared, "'or to use a more appropriate expression. "'It went out like a huge glowworm. "'Had it fled from us? "'We were duty-bound to fear so rather than hope so.' But at 12.53 in the morning, a deafening hiss became audible, reassembling the sounds made by a water spout, expelled with tremendous intensity. By then, Commander Farragut, Nedland, and I were on the aft deck, peering eagerly into the profound gloom. Nedland, the commander asked, you often heard whales bellowing? Uh, what the fuck did Nedland sound like? Oh, who cares? Often, sir, but never a like this. Who's signing me $2,000. Great, the pros are right yours. But tell me, isn't that the noise Oh. Isn't that the noise whales make when they spurt water from their blowhorse? Very noise, sir, but this one's way louder. Could be no mistake. There's definitely a whale lurking in our waters. With your permission, sir, the harpooner added. Tomorrow daybreak, we'll have words with it. If it's in a mood to listen to you, Mr. Land... uh, If it's in a mood to listen to you, Mr. Land... I replied in a tone far more convinced. Far from convinced. Rather. Let me get within four harpoon lengths of it, the Canadian shot back. Better listen. Um... But to get near it, the commander went on, "I'd have to put you. I'd have to put a whaleboat at your disposal." Suddenly, sir, so. "I'll be gambling with the lives of my men, and with my own." The harpooner simply replied. Near two o'clock in the morning, the core light reappeared, no less, no less intense, five miles to windward of the and Lincoln. Despite the distance, despite the noise of wind and sea, we could distinctly hear the fearsome thrashings of the animal's tail. Even its panting breath. Seemingly at the moment this enormous narwhal came up to breathe at the surface of the ocean, air was sucked into its lungs like uh, steam into huge cylinders of a 2,000 horsepower engine. Hmm. I said to myself, A whale is powerful as a whole cavalry regiment. Now that's a whale of a whale. Ah, that's a whale of a tail, until tell you a A whale of a tail or two. By the flesh of fish in the blue-doo-boo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo-doo. I forget the words. It's all true, I swear by my tattoo. Is that from 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea? Hold on, I think it is. By Kirk Douglas, right? I think that is in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Checking check, yeah it is! Oh, you played Nedland! Got a whale of a tale to tell you lad. Whale of a tale or two. Bad the flapping fish. That's awesome. It's actually, that's so good. I need to watch that movie, especially after reading the book, which is super good, this book's awesome. We stayed on alert until daylight, getting ready for action. Whaling gear was set up along the railing. Our chief officer loaded the blunderbusses, which can launch harpoons as far as a mile. Jesus fucking H. Christ. And the long duck guns with exploding bullets that can mortally wound even the most powerful animals. Nedland was content to sharpen his harpoon, a dreadful weapon, in his hands. At 6 o'clock, day began to break. With dawn's early light, the narwhal's electric glow disappeared. At 7 o'clock, the day went along well, but a very dense morning mist shrank the horizon and our best spyglasses were unable to pierce it the outcome disappointment and anger I hoisted myself up to the cross trees of the mizzen sail some officers were already perched on the mastheads at 8 o'clock the mist rolled ponderously over the waves and the huge curls were lifting little by little the horizon grew wider and clearer all at once suddenly just as the previous evening Nedlin's voice was audible There's the thing in question I stand to port." the harpooner shouted every eye looked to the point indicated there a mile half off the frigate a long, blackish body emerged a meter above the waves, quivering violently. Its tail was creating a considerable eddy. Neither had um, caudal equipment thrashed. Never had caudal equipment thrashed the sea with such power. An immense wake of glowing whiteness marked the animal's tracks, sweeping in a long curve. A frigate drew nearer to the whale. I, met, I examined it with a completely open mind. Those reports from the Shannon and the Helvetta had slightly exaggerated its dimensions. I put its length only at 250 feet. Its girth was more difficult to judge, but all in all, the animal seemed to be wholly proportioned in all three dimensions, wonderfully proportioned in all three dimensions. While well, I was observing this phenomenal creature, two jets of steam and water sprang from its blowholes and rose to an altitude 40 meters, which saw for me its mode of breathing. For this, I finally concluded it belonged to the bl- branch Verbrata, class Mammalia, subclass Monodelphia, group Pisciforma, order Cetacea, family. But here I couldn't make up my mind. The order said to see it consists of three families, baleen whales, sperm whales, and dolphins. And in this last group, that narwhals are placed. Each of these families is divided into several genia, each genus into species, each species into varieties. So I was still mystified missing variety, species, genius, and family, but no doubt I would complete my classifying with the aid of Heaven and Commander Ferragut. The crew was waiting patiently for the orders from their leader. The latter, after carefully observing the animal, called for his engineer. The engineer raced over. Sir, the commander asked, "'Are you up to pressure?' I sir?' The engineer replied, "'Fine. Stoke your furnaces and clap on full steam.' Three cheers greeted this order. The hour of battle had sounded. A few moments later, the frigate's two funnels vomited torrents of black smoke and its deck quaked from the trembling of the boilers. Driven forward by its powerful propeller, the Abraham Lincoln head straight for the animal. Unconcerned, the latter let us come within half a cable length, then not bothering to dive, got up a little speed, retreated, and was content to keep its distance.' "'This chase dragged on for about three-quarters of an hour "'without the frigate gaining two fathoms "'on the um, cetacean. "'At this rate, it was obvious that we would never catch upward.' infuriated Commander Farragut kept twisting "'the thick tuft of hair that flourished below his chin. "'Nedland!' he called. "'Canadian reported once. "'Um, oh, Mr. Land?' commander asked. "'Do you still advise me putting my long boats to sea?' "'Um, no, sir,' Nedland replied. "'Because that beast won't be caught against its will.' "'What should we do?' "'Stoke up more steam, sir, if you can. "'As for me, with your permission, "'I'll go and perch on the bobsteads under the bowsprit.' And then we can get within a harpoon length. I'll harpoon the brute. Go for it, Ned. Commander Farragut replied, Engineer, go, keep the pressure mounting. Nedlin made his way to his post. The furnaces were urged into even greater activity. Our propeller did 43 revolutions per minute and steam shot from the valves. Heaving the log, um, we verified that the Abraham Lincoln was going at a rate of 18.5 miles per hour. But That damned animal also did a speed of 18.5. For the next hour, our frigate kept up the space without gaining a fathom. This was humiliating for one of the fastest racers in the American Navy. The crew was working up into a blind rage. Sailor after sailor heaved insults at the monster, which, uh, couldn't be bothered with answering back. Commander Farragut was no longer simply content to twist his goatee. He chewed on it. The engineer was summoned once again. You're out to maximum pressure, commander asked him. Aye, sir, the engineer replied. Your valves don't charge you to six and a half atmospheres. Charge them to ten atmospheres. Typical American order if I ever heard one. It would have sounded just fine during some Mississippi paddle wheeler race to outstrip the competition. Council I replied to my- I said to my gallant servant at my side, You realize that we'll probably blow ourselves sky-high? As master wishes! Council replied, All right, I admit it. I did wish to run this risk. The valves were charged. More coal was swallowed by the furnaces. Ventilators shot torrents of arrows over the brazier. Abraham Lincoln's speed increased. Its masts trembled down to the blocks. Swirls of smoke could barely squeeze through the narrow funnels. We heaved the log a second time. Well, I'm spin. Commander Farragut asked, 19.3 miles per hour, sir. Keep stoking the furnaces. The engineer did so. Pressure gauge went, uh, marked 10 atmospheres. But no doubt, the uh, cetacean itself had warmed up. Because without the least trouble, it also did 19.3. What a chase! No, I can't describe the excitement as it shook my very being. The Nedland stayed at his post, harpoon in hand. Several times, the animal let us approach. "'We're all in it!' the Canadian would shout. "'Just as he was about to strike, the Cetacean would see, uh, steal off with swiftness "'I could estimate as no less than 30 miles per hour. "'Even at maximum speed, it took the liberty of thumbing its nose at the frigate "'by running a full circle around us. "'A howl of fury burst from every throat. By I knew we were no farther along than 8 o'clock in the morning. "'Commander Farragut decided um, to use more direct methods. "'Bah!' he said, "'The animal's faster than the day we're right. "'All right, we'll see if it can outrun our conical shells.' Mate, man, the gun below! For a forecastle cannon was immediately locked and leveled. The cannon fired a shot, but its passed some feet above the cetacean, uh, which stayed half a mile off. <laughs> Over to someone with better aim, Commander shouted. And $500 to the man who could pierce that infernal beast. Calm of, uh, of, of eye, cool of feature, an old gray bearded gunner, it seemed to this day, approached the cannon, put it in position, took aim for a good while. There was a mighty explosion mingled with cheers from the crew. The shell reached its target. It hit the animal, but, not, uh, but in but not in the usual fashion. It bounced off that rounded surface and vanished into sea two miles out. Um, Oh, drat! said the old gunner in his anger. A rascal must be covered with six inches of arm plate. Curse the beast! Commander Farragut shouted. The hunt was on again and Commander Farragut leaned over to me saying, I'll chase that animal till my friggin' explodes. Yes, I replied. Nobody would blame you. I fucking what were you doing? Just let it go. We can still hope that the animal would tire out and not be as insensitive of uh, to exhaustion as steam engines. But no luck... Hour after hour went by without it showing uh, the least sign of weariness. However, to the Abraham Lincoln's credit, it must be said that we struggled on... Uh, with Tyler's persistence. Oh, man, I'm sleepy. I estimate we covered the distance of at least 500 kilometers during this ill-fated day of November 6th. but night fell and wrapped the surging oceans in its shadows. By then, I thought our expedition had come to an end, that we would never see this fantastic animal again. I was mistaken! 10.50 in the evening an electric light reappeared three miles to windward of the frigate just as clear as intense as the night before the narwhal seemed motionless was it asleep perhaps weary from its workday, just riding the waves this was our chance Commander Farragut was determined to take full advantage of it. he gave his orders the Abraham Lincoln stayed a half steam and advancing cautiously so as not to awaken its adversary in mid-ocean, it's not unusual to encounter whales so sound asleep they can sex successfully be attacked. And Netherland had harpooned more than one in its slumber. The Canadian went on to resume his post on the bobsteads under the bowsprit. The frigate approached without making a sound, stopping two cable lengths from the animal and coasted. Not a soul breathed on board. A profound silence reigned over the decks. We were not a hundred feet from the blazing coral light, whose glow grew stronger and stronger to dazzle the eyes. Just then, leaning over the forecastle railing, I saw Ned Lynn below me, one hand grasping the martingale, the other brandishing his deadly harpoon. Barely twenty feet separated him from the motionless animal. All at once, his arm shot forward, and the harpoon launched. I heard the weapon collide resonantly, as if it hit some hard substance. The electric light suddenly went out, and two enormous water sprouts uh, crashed under the deck of the frigate, racing like a torrent from stem to stern, toppling crewmen, breaking uh, spare masts and yardjims of their the lashings a hideous collision occurred and thrown over the rail with no time to catch a hold of it I was hurled into the sea holy shit bills looks like Professor Arnox is going for a swim this past Saturday was the 4th of July and I uh, have actually recently changed my schedule to back to Monday to Friday um, I previously had like a Monday, Tuesday weekend, and now I have a Saturday Sunday weekend. And, um, in order to, you know, celebrate that, uh, me and a big group of my friends decided to go out into the wild and do some hiking, which I haven't done in a while. I know like I do the the kayaking and the lake adventures fairly often, but um, actual hiking tends not to be my my strategy. My strategy tends to be finding amazing nature off the highway or near a parking lot because it's easier um and my cardio isn't great uh even though I'm in excellent physical shape my cardio is just absolute trash my cardiovascular system needs improvement anyway we went out to um oh god I can't remember I can't remember the name of the park it's a state park out near like Black Diamond uh, in Ravensdale Washington just like kind of way out there uh for me it took like an hour and a half to get there Um, Anyway, we we went uh, to the state park next to the Green River, uh, which apparently had, like, a murderer named after him, and there was, like, a ghost town nearby, kind of, like, deep in the mountains. Uh, And the river itself was pretty awesome. Uh, Not that wide of a river, but it had, like, Class 3 and Class 4 rapids in the river. Um, But it also was just loaded with rocks, which I'm guessing is why it's a Class 4, because it's, like... It'd be pretty treacherous in a boat. You're going to, you're going to hit something. So, you know, be warned. That boat's got to be sturdy. Um, but it was, it was beautiful out there. Um, we, we got some sun. Um, I definitely got some sun, even though I wore sunscreen, but I never, I didn't reapply it. I only put on like the one coat. Um, one of my friends, bless her soul, fell in the river, uh, a couple of times. She's okay. Um, but that was, a uh, that was scary because you know, big fucking rapids. Um, didn't want it to lose anybody, but nobody was seriously hurt or anything like that. Just some, just some wet socks, you know, just to kind of grump, grumpify a face, but nobody, nobody got grumpy from wet socks today. Um, it actually reminded me of a, of a trip last October when, um, we, we, the same group of people and I went out to like a pumpkin patch and, uh, there's just mud fucking everywhere, and we we're just watching people eat shit in the mud, and nobody ate shit in that mud. Not not out of my friend group, at least. Um, but it's a, it's a great little, great little state park. A lot more people than I was hoping for, but thankfully, they tended to stay in the picnic area, um, and not actually venture out into the wild, which we were able to do. Um, I think the most interesting plant we saw today was, uh, or not today, rather, but on, um, on the 4th of July, was, uh... Indian pipe if you if you google that it's a it's a bizarre plant Uh, It is uh, this weird like Kind of translucent white flower thing. I believe it is technically a fungus Uh, and because it doesn't have any chlorophyll of its own it acts as a parasite and consumes the the energy uh, given to it by like local nearby conifer trees So it's, it's just like this kind of gross leech of a plant. It's really bizarre. Um, but it's called Indian pipe. It's also known as ghost plant or corpse plant. It's fucking super neat. Um, yeah, it was, it was bizarre. We only saw one like bunch of it, but I like, it looks so alien compared to everything else. Plant is sometimes completely waxy white, but often has black flecks or pale pink coloration. It's super strange. Um yeah, so yeah, that was super, 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 super cool to see that really bizarre plant. Uh, but yeah, the river was gorgeous. I took a lot of pictures. Um, I'll post some on Instagram uh here pretty soon, and then you can also check them out at goingupcast.com forward slash blog, which just shows you my most recent Instagram pictures. Uh, and a bunch of others from, from the long, long ago. But yeah, it was it was a really good trip. Um It was uh it was exhausting. Uh, which is kind of embarrassing because we walked less than a mile in total, but we were all like super tired And it mostly comes from the fact that for the last like three to four months None of us have really so much as like left our homes, you know And then all of a sudden to go out into the wild where there's sunlight and there's people and we're carrying backpacks full of water and changes of clothes Um, it was it was a lot for all of us. I would say so it was kind of going from like zero to 60 back into like social circles and um, we, you know, we it tired us out basically. It it knocked us right the fuck out. So, anyway, that was a that was my fourth uh, celebration. So I hope you all had a sel- safe and happy Fourth of July. Um, watching Hamilton on Disney Plus. That's patriotic hell. Uh right, let's move on to the next thing in the podcast. Chapter seven: The Whale of Unknown Species. Although I was startled by this unexpected descent, I at least have a very clear recollection of my sensations during it. At first, I was dragged about 20 feet under. I'm a good swimmer without claiming to equal uh, the such other authors as Byron and Edgar Allan Poe, who were master divers, and I did, uh, not, I did lose my head on the way down. With two vigorous kicks of the heel, I came back to the surface of the sea. My first concern was to look for the frigate. Had the crew seen me go overboard? Was the Abraham Lincoln tacking about? Would Commander Farragut put up, uh, put a longboat to sea? Could I hope to be rescued? The gloom was profound. I glimpsed a black mass disappearing eastward, where its running lights were fading out in the distance. It was the frigate. I felt I was done for. Help! Help! I shouted, swimming desperately towards the Aemur Link, and my clothes were weighing me down. The water glued uh, them to my body. They were paralyzing my movements. I was sinking. I was suffocating. Out! This was the last shout I gave. My mouth was filling with water. I struggled against uh, being dragged into the depths. Suddenly, my clothes were seized by energetic hands. I felt myself pulled abruptly back to the surface of the sea. And yes, I heard these words pronounced in my ear. Um. Oh. and master would oblige me by leaning on me shoulder. Master would swim much greater ease. "'With one hand I seized the arm of my loyal counsel. "'You!' I replied, "'You! Myself!' Counsel replied, "'At master's command!' The collision threw you overboard along with me?' "'Not at all, but being in my master's employ, "'I followed master!' "'A fine land thought this only natural. "'What about the frigate?' I asked. "'The frigate!' counsel replied, rolling over on his back. "'I think master had best not depend on it to any great extent.' "'What are you saying?' "'I'm just saying that as I jumped overboard, "'I heard man shout and male at the helm, "'our propeller and rudder are smashed!' "'Smashed? Yes, smashed by that monster's tusk. "'I believe it's the sole injury the Abraham Lincoln has sustained. "'But most inconveniently for us, the ship can no longer steer. "'Then we're done for, perhaps,' Council replied serenely. "'However, we still have a few hours before us, "'and a few hours one can do a great many things.' Council's unflappable composure cheered me up. "'I swam more vigorously, but hampered by clothes as the they was restricting, "'as the cloak made of lead.' I was managing with only the greatest of difficulty Counsel noticed as much Master will allow me to make an incision He said And he slipped an open clasp knife under my clothes Slitting them from top to bottom with one swift stroke Then he briskly undressed me while I swam for us both Then it did counsel the same favor And we continued to navigate side by side Butt ass naked But our current circumstance was no less dreadful Perhaps they hadn't seen us go overboard And even if they had The frigate being undone by its rudder Could not return to leeward after us we can only count on its longboats. Council had coolly resent out this as a hypothesis and lay his plans accordingly. An amazing character, this boy. In mid ocean, the stoic lad seemed right at home. So, having concluded that our sole chance for salvation lay in being picked up by the Abraham Lincoln's longboats, we had to take steps to wait for them as long as possible. Consequently, I decided to divide our energy so that we both uh, wouldn't both be worn out at the same time, and this was the arrangement. While one of us lay on his back, staying motionless with and arms, arms crossed and legs outstretched, the other would swim and propel his partner forward. This towing roll was to last no longer than ten minutes, and by relieving each other in this way, we could stay afloat for hours, perhaps even until daybreak. Slim chance, but hope springs eternal in the human breast. Besides, there were two of us. Last, I can vouch, as improbable as it seems, that even if I had wanted to destroy all my illusions, even if I, uh, even if I had been willing to quote, given to despair, I could not have done so. The cetacean had rammed our frigate at about 11 o'clock in the evening. I therefore calculated on eight hours of swimming until sunrise. A strenuous task, but feasible thanks to our relieving each other. The sea was pretty smooth and barely tired us. Sometimes I tried to peer through the dense gloom, which was broken only by the phosphorescent flickers coming from our movements. I stared at the luminous ripples breaking over my hands, shimmering sheets splattered with blotches of bluish gray. It seemed as if we had been plunged into a pool of quicksilver. Near one o'clock in the morning, I was overcome with a tremendous exhaustion. My limbs stiffened in the grip of intense cramps. Counsel had to ke- uh, had to keep me going, and attending to our self-preservation became his sole responsibility. I soon heard the poor lad gasping; his breath becoming shallow and quick. I didn't think he could stand such exertions for most much longer. Go on, go on! I told him. Leave Master behind, he replied. Never! I'll drown before he does. Just then past the frigates, a large cloud that the wind was driving eastward, the moon appeared. Surface of the sea glistened under its rays. That kindly light rekindled our strength. I held up my head again. My eyes darted to every point of the horizon. I spotted the frigate. It was five miles from us and formed no more than a dark, barely perceptible mass. But as for the longboats, not a one in sight. I tried to call out, What was the uh, what was the use at such a distance? My swollen lips couldn't let a single sound through. Count could still articulate a few words, and I heard him repeat at intervals, help! Help! Ceasing all movement for an instant, we listened. It seemed, uh, uh, it may have been a ringing in my ear from this organ filling, uh, with impeded blood, but it seemed to me that Council's shouts had received an answer back. "'Did you hear that?' I muttered. "'Yes, yes!' And Council hurled, hurled another desperate plea into space. "'This time there could be no mistake. "'A human voice had answered us. "'Was it the voice of some poor devil left behind in mid-ocean? "'Some other victim of that collision suffered by our ship? "'Or wasn't one of the frigates' longboats hailing us out of the gloom?' Council made one final effort, embracing his hand on my shoulders. "'While I offered resistance with one supreme exertion, "'he raised himself half out of the water and fell back exhausted. "'What did you see?' "'I saw!' he muttered. "'I saw, but we mustn't talk. "'Save our strength!' "'What had he seen?' Then, Lord knows why, the thought of the monster came into my head for the first time. But even so, that voice! Gone are the days when Jonas took refuge in the bellies of whales. Nevertheless, Council kept telling me. Sometimes he looked up, sometimes straight ahead, shouted a request for directions, which was answered by a voice that was getting closer and closer. I could barely hear it. I was at the end of my strength. My fingers gave out. My hands were no help to me. My mouth opened convulsively, filling with brine. Its coldness ran through me. I raised my hand one last time, then I collapsed. Just then, something hard banged against me. I clung to it. Then I felt myself being pulled upward, back to the surface, uh, back to the surface of the water. My chest caved in, and I fainted. For certain, I came too quickly. uh I came too quickly, because somebody was massaging me so vigorously it left furrows in my flesh. I half opened my eyes. Counsel, I muttered, "Did Master ring for me?" Counsel replied. Just then, the last light of the moon settling on the horizon, I spotted a face that wasn't Counsel's, but one which I recognized at once. Ned! I exclaimed. In person, sir, and still after his prize. The Canadian replied, you were been thrown overboard at the frigate's collision? Yes, Professor, but I was luckier than you. And right away I was able to set foot on this floating islet. Islet! Or in other words, our gigantic narwhal. Explain yourself, Ned. Just as, um, it's just that as soon as I realized why my harpoon got blunted and couldn't puncture its hide. Why, Ned, why? Because, Professor, this beast is made out of boilerplate steel! At this point in the story, I needed to get a grip on myself to reconstruct exactly what I experienced and made doubly sure of everything I write. The Canadian's last words caused a sudden upheaval in my brain. I swiftly hoisted myself to the summit of the half-submerged creature or object that it was serving as our refuge. Tested it with my foot, obviously it was some hard, impenetrable substance, not soft matter that makes up the bodies of our big marine mammals. This hard substance could have been a bony carapace, like those that covered prehistoric animals, and I might have uh, left it at that and classified this monster uh, such among such amphibious reptiles as turtles or alligators. Well, no, the blackish back supporting me was smooth and polished, with no overlapping scales. Or impact, it gave off a metallic sonor- um, sonority, and it's uh, and as incredible as this sounds, it seems I swear to be made out of riveted plates. No doubts uh, were possible. This animal, this monster, this natural phenomenon that had puzzled the whole scientific world, had that had muddled and misled the minds of semen in both hemispheres, was there could be no escaping it, an even more astonishing phenomenon, a phenomenon made by the hand of man. Even if I had discovered some fabulous mythological creature really existed, I wouldn't have given me it wouldn't have given me such a terrific mental jolt. It's easy enough to accept that prodigious things can come from our creator. But to find, all at once, right before your eyes, that the impossible had been mysteriously achieved by man himself, this staggers the mind. But there's no question now, we were stretched out on the back of some kind of underwater boat that, as far as I can judge, boasted the shape of an immense steel fish. Nedland had clear views on the issue. Council and I could only um, could only line up behind him. But then, I said, does this contraption contain some sort of locomotive mechanism and a crew to run it? Apparently, the harpooner replied. And yet, for the three hours I've lived on this floating island, it hasn't shown a sign of life. boat hasn't moved at all. No, Professor Arnox. It just rides with the waves. <clears throat> but otherwise, it hasn't stirred. But we know that it's certainly gifted with great speed. Now then, since an engine is um needed to generate that speed and a mechanic to run that engine, I conclude we're saved. <laughs> Nedlin put in uh his tone, denoting reservations. Just then, as if to take my side of the argument, a bubble began astern uh, of this strange submersible, whose drive mechanism was obviously a propeller, and the boat started to move. We barely had time to hang on to its topside, which emerged about eighty centimeters above the water. Fortunately its speed was not excessive. So long as it navigates horizontally, Nedlin muttered, I've no complaints. But if it gets the urge to dive, I wouldn't give two dollars for my hide. The Canadian might have quoted a much lower price, uh, so it was imperative to make contact with whatever beings were confined inside the plating of this machine. I searched its surface for an opening or a hatch, a manhole, to use the official term. But the lines of rivets had been uh, the um, ah, the lines of rivets had been firmly driven into sheets. Iron joints were straight and uniform. Moreover, the moon uh, then disappeared and left us in profound darkness. We had to wait for daylight uh, to find some way of getting inside of this underwater boat. So our salvation lay totally in the hands of the mysterious helmsman steering this submersible, and if uh, if it made a dive, we were done for. But aside from this occurring, I didn't doubt the possibility of our making contact with them. In fact, if they didn't produce their own air, they inevitably had to make periodic visits to the surface of the oxygen ocean to replenish their oxygen supply. Hence the need for some opening that uh, put the boat's interior in contact with the atmosphere. As for any hope of being rescued by Commander Farragut, I uh, had been renounced completely. We were being swept westward, and I estimated uh, estimate that our comparatively moderate speed uh, reached 12 miles per hour. The prowess churned the waves with mathematic regularity and sometimes emerging above the surface and throwing phosphorescent sprays to gray heights. Near 4 o'clock in the morning, the submersible picked up speed. We could barely cope with this dizzying rush, and the waves battered us at close range. Fortunately, Ned's hands came across a big mooring ring fastened to the top side of the sheet iron back, and we all held on for dear life. Finally, this long night was over. My imperfect memories won't let me recall every impression of it. A single detail comes back to me. Several times during various lulls of wind and sea. I thought I heard indistinct sounds, sort of elusive harmony produced by uh, distant musical chords. What was the secret behind this underwater navigating? Whose explanation the whole world had sought in vain? What beings lived inside this strange boat? What mechanical force allowed it to move about with such prodigious speed? Daylight approached. The morning mist surrounded us, but they soon broke up. I was about to proceed with careful examination of the hull, whose topside formed a sort of horizontal platform, when I felt it sinking little by little. Our damnation! Nedlin shouted, stamping his foot in the resonant shoot hour. Open up, you antisocial navigators! But it was difficult to make yourself heard above the deafening beats of the propeller. Fortunately, the submerging movement stopped. From inside the boat, there came sudden noises of iron fastenings pushed roughly aside. One of the steel plates flew up, a man appeared, gave a bizarre yell, and instantly disappeared few moments later eight strapping fellows appeared silently their faces like masks and dragged us down into their fearsome machine how did how did you not oh whatever whatever you fucking stupid ass crewman of the novelist this is a bit of a weird one because contextually i don't know for sure if it's fun or not because i haven't seen it yet but critical role is back and i am very 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 excited uh to get back on the the mighty nine train um it is uh been some time since we fucking had critical role you know since before the world exploded uh but it's back on the fucking airwaves of the internet it's back and i'm i'm very excited to see the uh the critical role crew doing the social distancing setup um i'm actually going to watch it here after i'm done recording the podcast which is kind of uh uh, backwards but you know what i needed to get the podcast done and i don't have the three hours to watch it at a time also they came out with a frumpkin plushie and i have it and it's wonderful um in case you're on the fence about it for some reason but critical role episode 100 to season two is finally out and there's tons of like Here's what happened in the first 99 episode uh, recaps uh, that you can enjoy, um, so you don't even have to watch like the first 100 episodes. You can just you can just hop right into it. So fun fun fact, in case you were case you were curious, but that's just just a fun thing that's going on that I'm really excited for. Let's move on to the next thing. Go watch Chapter Eight: Mobilis Inmobili. Sure. This brutally executed capture was carried out with lightning speed My companions and I had no time to collect ourselves I don't know how they felt about being shoved inside the squatic prison As for me, I was shivering all over With whom were we dealing? Surely with some new breed of pirates exploiting the sea after their own fashion. The narrow hatch had barely closed over me When I was surrounded by profound darkness Saturated with the outside light My eyes couldn't make out a thing I felt myself, uh, naked, clinging to the steps of an iron ladder. Forcibly seized Nedlin and Council were behind me. At the foot of the ladder, a door opened and instantly closed behind us with a loud clang. We were alone. Where? I couldn't say. Could barely even imagine. All was darkness, but such utter darkness that after several minutes, my eyes were still unable to catch a single one of those hazy gleams that drifted through even the blackest of the nets. Meanwhile, furious at the going-on, Nedlin gave free rein to his indignation. Damnation! he exclaimed. These people are about as hospitable as the savages of New Caledonia." Yeah, that's right. All that's lacking in them is for them... Uh, all that's lacking is for them to be cannibals. I would be surprised if they were, but believe you me, they won't eat me without my kicking up a protest. <laughs> Calm yourself, Ned, my friend, Cancel replied serenely. Don't flare up so quickly. We aren't in a kettle yet. In a kettle, no, Canadian shot back. But in an oven, for sure. It's dark enough for one. Luckily, my Bowie knife hasn't left me, and I can still see well enough to put into use. First one of these bandits who lays a hand on me... Don't be so irritable, Ned, I I then told the harpooner. Don't ruin things for us with pointless violence. Who knows whether they might be listening to us. Instead, let's try to find out where we are. I started moving, groping my way. After five steps, I encountered an iron wall made out of riveted boilerplate. Then, turning around, I bumped into a wooden table uh, next to uh, which to next several stools had been set. The floor of this prison lay hidden beneath thick hempen matting that deadened the sound of footsteps. Its naked walls didn't reveal any trace of door or window. Going around the opposite way, Council met up with me, and we returned to the middle of this cabin, which um, had to be 20 feet long by 10 feet wide. As for its height, not even Nedland, with his great stature, was able to determine it. Half an hour had already gone by without our situation changing when our eyes were suddenly spirited from utter darkness into blinding light. Our prison lit up all at once. In other words, it was filled with luminescent matter so intense at first I couldn't stand the brightness of it. From its glare and whiteness, I recognized the electric globe that had played around this underwater boat like some magnificent phosphorescent phenomenon. After involuntarily closing my eyes, I reopened them and saw that this luminous force came from a frosted half-globe curved out of the cabin ceilings. Finally, it's light enough to see! Nedlin exclaimed, knife in hand, stayed on the defensive. Yes, I replied, then ventured the opposite view. But as for our situation, we're still in the dark. Master Muslin, patience, said the emotionless council. This sudden illumination of our cabin enabled me to examine it in tiniest detail. It contained only a table and five stools. Its invisible door must have been hermetically sealed. Not a sound reached our ears. Everything seemed dead inside this boat. Was it in motion or stationary at the surface of the ocean or sinking into the depths? I couldn't tell. But this luminous globe hadn't been turned on without good reason. Consequently, I hoped that some crewmen would soon make an appearance. If you want to co-sign people to oblivion, you don't light up their dungeons. I was not mistaken. Unlocking noises became audible, and a door opened, and two men appeared. One was short and stocky, powerfully muscled, broad-shouldered, robust limbs, the head squat, the hair black and luxuriant, the mustache heavy, the eyes bright, penetrating, and his whole personality stamped with that southern-blooded zest that, in France, typifies people of province. The philosopher Diderot had very aptly claimed that a man's bearing is a clue to his character, and the stocky little man was certainly living proof of this claim. You could sense that uh, his everyday conversation must have been packed with such vivid figures of speech as personification, symbolism, and misplaced modifiers. But I was never in a position to verify this, because around me, uh, he used s- uh, only an odd and utterly incomprehensible dialect. The second stranger deserves, deserves a more detailed description. A disciple of such character, judgment, and that, um... Anatomists, as Gray or Engel could have read this man's features like an open book. Without hesitation, I identified his dominant qualities, self-confidence, since his head reared like a nobleman's above the arc formed by the lines of his shoulders, and his black eyes gazed with icy assurance, calmness, since his skin, pale and rather ruddy, indicated the tranquility of blood, energy shown by the swiftly uh, knitting muscles of his brows, and finally, courage, since his deep breathing denotes tremendous reserves of vitality. I might add that uh, that this man, uh, this was a man of great pride, that his calm, firm gaze seemed to reflect thinking on an elevated plane, and that the harmony of his facial expressions and bodily movements resulted in an overall effect of unquestionable candor, according to the findings of physiognomists, that, those analysts of facial characters. I felt involuntarily reassured in his presence, and this boded well for our interview. My word, this is some descriptive-ass language, isn't it? Whether this individual was thirty-five or fifty years of age, I could not precisely state. He was tall, his forehead broad, his nose straight, his mouth clearly etched, his teeth, mag- teeth magnificent, his hands refined, tapered, and to use the word from a palmist, uh, palmistry, highly psychic. In other words, worthy of serving a lofty and passionate spirit. This man was certainly the most wonderful phys- physical specimen I had ever encountered. One unusual detail: his eyes were spaced a little farther out from each other and could instantly take in nearly a quarter of the horizon. This ability, as I later verified, was strengthened by a range of vision even greater than Netherlands. When the stranger focused his gaze on an object, his eyebrow lines gathered into a frown, his heavy eyelids closed around his pupils to contract his huge field of vision, and he looked. What a look, as if he could magnify objects shrinking into the distance, as if he could probe into your very soul, as if he could pierce those sheets of water so opaque our eyes and scan the deepest seas. Wearing caps made out of sea otter fur, Which, for uh, reference point, is the thickest fur in the animal kingdom at half a million hairs per square inch of fur. Fur so thick, water doesn't touch the skin. It's very thick fur. And shod in seal skin fishing boots, these two strangers were dressed in clothing made from some unique fabric that flattered the figure and allowed great freedom of movement. The taller of the two, apparently the leader on board, examined us with the greatest care, but without pronouncing a word. Then turning to his companion, he conversed with him in a language I did not recognize. It was sonorous, harmonious, flexible dialect, whose vowels seemed to undergo a highly varied accentuation. The other replied with a shake of his head and added two or three utterly incomprehensible words. Then it seemed to question me directly with a long stare. I replied in clear French that I wasn't familiar with his language, but he didn't seem to understand me, and the situation grew rather baffling. Still, master should tell our story, counsel said to me. Perhaps these gentlemen will grasp a few words of it. I tried again, telling tales of our adventure, clearly articulating every, uh, my every syllable. And not leaving out a single detail, I started with our names and titles, and then in order, I introduced Professor Arnox, his manservant counsel, and Mr. Ned Lind harpooner. The man with calm, gentle eyes listened to me serenely, even courteously, and paid remarkable attention. But nothing in his facial expression indicated that he understood my story. When I finished, he didn't pronounce a single word one resource still left uh, was to speak english perhaps they would be familiar with this nearly universal language but i only but only uh but i only knew it as i did the german language well enough to read it fluently not well enough to speak it correctly here however our overriding need was to make ourselves understood come on it's your turn told the harpooner over to you mr lant pull out your bag of tricks the best english ever spoken by an english section and try for a more favorable route than mine Nedlin needed no persuading and started our story all over again, most of which I could follow. Its contents were the same, but the form differed. Carried away by his volatile temperament, the Canadian put great animations into it. He complained vehemently about being imprisoned in defiance of his civil rights, asked by virtue of, uh, by virtue of which law he was hereby detained, uh, invoked writs of habeas corpus, threatened to press charges against anyone holding him illegal in illegal custody, ranted, gesticulated, shouted, and finally conveyed an expressive gesture that we were dying of hunger. This was perfectly true, and we had nearly forgotten the fact. Much to his amazement, the harpooner seemed no more intelligible than I had been. Our visitors didn't bat an eye. Apparently, they were engineers who understood the languages of neither the French physicist Arago, nor the Englishist, English physicist Faraday. Thoroughly baffled after vainly exhausting our philological um, resources, I no longer knew what tactic to pursue when Council told me, A master will authorize me. I'll tell him the whole business in German. What? You know, German. I explained, like most Flemish people, with all due respect, master. On the contrary, my respect is due you. Go for it, my boy. And Counsel in his serene voice, described for the third time the various vicissitudes of our story. But despite our narrator's fine accent and stylish turn of a phrase, the German language was met no success. Finally, as a last resort, I hauled out everything I could remember from my early school days and tried to narrate our adventures in Latin. Cicero would have plugged his ears and sent me to the scullery. But I somehow managed to pull through with the same negative result. This last attempt ultimately misfiring. The two strangers, ex- uh, two strangers, exchanged a few words in their incomprehensible language and withdrew, not even favoring us with one of those encouraging gestures that used and um, that are used in every country in the world. The door closed again. This is outrageous! Nedland shouted, exploding for the twentieth time. I ask you, we speak English, French, German, and Latin to these rogues, and neither of them has the decency to even answer back. Calm down, Ned. "'I told the seething harpooner, "'Anger won't get us anywhere.' "'But, Professor,' our raspable companion went on, "'can you see that we would die of hunger on this arkage?" cage?' "'Bah!' Council put in phil- uh, philosophically. "'We can hold out a good while yet!' "'My friend,' I said, "'we mustn't despair. "'We've gotten out of tighter spots, "'so please do me the favor of waiting a bit "'before you, uh, before you form your views on the commander "'and crew of this boat.' "'My views are fully formed,' Nellon shot back. "'The rogues!' "'Oh, good. "'And what What from what country?' "'And from what country?' "'Rogedom!' Again, Ned, as yet that country isn't clearly marked on maps of the world. I it but I admit that the nationality of these two strangers is hard to make out, neither English, French, nor German, and that's all we can say. But I'm tempted to think that the commander and his chief officer were born into the lower latitudes. There must be some southern blood in them. But as to whether they're Spaniards, Turks, Arabs, or East Indians, their physical characteristics don't give me nearly enough to go on. As for their speech, it's utterly incomprehensible. That nuisance is not knowing every. Uh, that's the nuisance of not knowing every language. Counselor replied, or the drawback in not having one universal language. They actually tried that. They they there was an attempt. Um, I want to say in the seventies. It's called Esperanto. Um, it was supposed to be. Um, yeah is is the most widely spoken constructed international auxiliary language it was designed to be everybody's second language so you you would have your your, your core national language and then you would also speak esperanto meaning that uh yeah here we go so it was cre- this language was created by polish ophthalmologist L.L. Zamenhof in 1887 never mind it's much older than I thought this actually might predate 20,000 leagues under the sea Uh, let me just let me just check real quick when was 20,000 leagues written it doesn't predate it it, it's afterwards sorry yeah 20,000 leagues was uh, printed in 1870 Esperanto came out in 1887 so 17 years after the book came out Esperanto was invented um, Zamenhof's goal was to create an easy and flexible language that could serve as a universal second language to foster world peace and international understanding and to build a quote, community of speakers as he believed that one could not have a language without such community. The original title for the language was simply the international language but early speakers grew fond of the name Esperanta and began using it as the name for the language just two years after its creation. Name quickly uh, gained prominence and has become the official name ever since. Yeah, it's um there are they're estimated to be uh one thousand to several thousand um native speakers and uh second language users estimated from sixty-three thousand to two million across the world i would love to be able to speak esperanto because the principle behind it is super awesome and i love the idea of having a second language be universal you know those mandarin chinese is spoken by more people in the world and English is like the unofficial language of like the world's business. But how cool would it be if we all just fucking clammed up and just spoke Esperanto to one another? Everybody has to learn a new language. That's the only truly fair way. We've invented a language that everybody has to speak um, in order for, for us to not to do it. "'Which will all go out the window,' Nedlin replied. "'Don't you see these people have a language all to themselves, "'a language they've invented just to cause despair "'and decent people who ask for a little dinner? "'Why it never comes on Earth when you open your mouth, "'snap your jaws, smack your lips and teeth, "'isn't, um, that the world's most understandable message? "'From Quebec to the Tuamotu Islands, "'from Paris to the Antipodes, "'doesn't it mean I'm hungry, give me a bite to eat?' "'Oh!' Council put in. "'There are some people so unintelligent by nature!' "'As he was saying these words, the door opened. "'A steward entered.' He brought us some clothes and jackets and sailor's pants made out of fabric whose nature I didn't recognize. I hurried to change into them, and my companions followed suit. Meanwhile, our silent steward, perhaps a deaf mute, set the table and laid three pieces of settings. Something seriously afoot, Council said, and it bodes well. Bah, Uh, replied our rancorous harpooner. What the devil do you suppose they eat around here? Turtle livers, loin of sharks, dogfish steaks? We'll soon find out, Council said. Overlaid with silver dish covers, various platters had been neatly positioned on the table of cloth, and we sat down to eat. Assuredly, we were dealing with civilized people, and, it, and if it hadn't been for this electric uh, light flooding over us, I would have thought we were in the dining room of the Hotel Adep- um, Ad- Delphi, Adelphi in Liverpool, or the Grand Hotel in Paris. However, I feel compelled to mention that bread and wine were totally absent. The water was fresh and clear, but it was still water, which wasn't what Ned Lint had in mind. Among the food we were served, I was able to identify various daintily dressed fish, but I couldn't make up my mind about certain otherwise excellent dishes, and I couldn't even tell whether the contents belonged to the vegetable or the animal kingdom. As for the tableware, it was elegant and in perfect taste. Each utensil, spoon, fork, knife, and plate bore on its reverse uh, letter encircled by a Latin motto. Here is the exact duplicate. Mobilis in mobili. And then the letter N. Let me just Google what that means real quick. Mobilis in mobili. Translates to moving within a moving element. Yes, moving within a moving element. Interesting. I wonder what that means. Oh, and actually, that's the statement of the next. Moving within a moving element. It was a highly appropriate motto for this underwater machine so long as it's... uh, preposition in so long as the preposition in is translated as within not upon the letter n was no doubt and in the initial of the name of that mystifying individual in command beneath the seas Ned, and, yeah nemo ned and council um had no time for such musings they were wolfing down their food and without further ado i did the same by now i felt reassured about our fate and it seemed obvious that our hosts didn't intend to let us die in starvation but all earthly things come to an end, all things must pass, and even the hunger of people who hadn't eaten for fifteen hours, our appetites appeased, we felt an urgent need for sleep. An actual reaction after that interminable night of fighting for our lives. Ye gods, I'll sleep soundly. Council said, Me, I'm out like a light. Nathan replied, My two companions laid down on the cabin's carpeting were soon in deep in slumber. As for me... I gave in less readily to this intense need for sleep. Too many thoughts had piled up in my mind. Too many insoluble questions had arisen. Too many images were keeping my eyelids open. Where were we? What strange power was carrying us along? I felt, or at least I thought I did, the submersible sinking lower towards the sea's lower strata. Intense nightmares besieged me. In these mysterious marine sanctuaries, I envisioned hosts of unknown animals. In this underwater boat, it seemed to be a blood relation of theirs, living, breathing, just as fearsome. And my mind grew calmer. My imagination melted into hazy drowsiness, and I see you fell into an uneasy slumber. Also, it tells there's an author out here that says, A bowie knife is a wide bladed dagger that Americans are forever carrying around. That's true. God, you know, I can't remember the last time I left house without my bowie knife stretched to like the inside of my calf, you know? Every American has a bowie knife. True, true statement. And that'll do it for this week's episode of the Going Upcast. I want to thank you all very much for listening. I hope you're enjoying 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It's actually a pretty long book, we're going to be in this, this world for quite some time. I hope you enjoy this stuff on Disney Plus and enjoyed my adventures from the 4th of July. Um, actually, at the time of recording this farewell, I'm watching episode 100 of Critical Role right now. And I love the way it's set up, like with the multiple stuff like that I think it's I think it's really well done and I'm I'm happy that we're able to pull something like that together I hope you all have a wonderful week we're kind of in the middle of summer which is pretty pretty crazy um and I hope you're all getting out there and enjoying some some wonderful nature, some good old-fashioned sun times and I'll see y'all next time